Flugelbinder create educational programmes to create change for people and planet. Flugelbinder started with Brad and Ian building conservation trips for students due to their love for the natural world. But they soon realised the power of travel to connect young people to global issues. It's through these connections and first-hand experiences that real change can happen. Flugelbinder performs sustainability audits, design and deliver workshops and run sustainable trips all over the world, educating students about their social and environmental impact. Flugelbinder, changing travel for future generations. Hello there and welcome to JogPod. Today we're joined by Stephen Legg, who's Professor of Historical Geography at the University of Nottingham. Thanks for joining us today, Stephen. Thank you. Your research is focused on colonial India in the context of British imperialism and interwar internationalism. And your research interests are anti-colonial social and political movements in interwar Delhi. It's, it's just fascinating stuff. I want to ask you about that later on. But first, um, I'd like to talk to you about the article that you've written in Geography Spring 2019, which you called Global Governance and Placemaking, India, Internationalism and Empire in the 1930s London. It's interesting for me because in it, you write about globalisation, you write about global governments, and you write about placemaking. And the new A-level specs all address all of those three issues. But what's interesting for me is that you pull together globalisation and placemaking together, which is an, an interesting take on it. I think it's fascinating. Well, I think one of the things um, I've learned through teaching undergraduates is that um, the real challenge is to get undergraduates to think of topics which are studied by other um, disciplines, whether sociology, sociology history or, or anthropology, and to get them to realise that there's something which geographers can bring to those studies, which other disciplines can't do necessarily or don't emphasise. And one of the ways I found most useful to do that is to get students to think about the relationships between places and networks, or in this case, places and globalisation. So one of the things I'm always keen to get students to think about are what are the historical geographies of the global? And we can break the global down into those two components, the places we associate with globalisation, and the networks that make globalisation. And one of the things I'm really keen to do is to get students to think those two things together, to think about space and scale together. And in the, the research I've been talking about in that paper, I look at a, a conference city, I look at um, London, the 1930s, and I can talk, if you like, about how I get people to think about the histories of global cities and the histories and geographies of, of globalisation. You also make the case for historical geography and through examining these historical phases of what's now called globalisation. So we put that in the mix as well. Yeah. So, so for, for instance, taking both of those approaches and scale, the space or places of globalisation and the networks, we can think about them historically. So in the case of London, uh, everyone seemingly knows Saskia Assassin's book, The Global City, New York, London and Tokyo. London is one of the global cities which everyone studies. But the point I make as an historical geography is that before London was a global city, it was an imperial city, probably you know, the, the, the epitome of the imperial city. 
And we can go into the city and look at how there are historical geographies behind many of the facets which still make London a global city. So it's, it's global reaches orchestrated by financial institutions. Many of those institutions are the exact same institutions which insured and financed um, exploration, plantation, and imperial traders. Whether it's Lloyd's insurers or some of the most famous banks, the HSBC as we know it now, was a bank which emerged directly to coordinate transactions between um, the Orient and Europe. We can think of governmental organizations as those which um, facilitate and, and regulate many of those globalizing tendencies. These were the same organizations which orchestrated um, the British Empire. But also we can think more um, diversely about institutions which make London a global hub. So, for us, educational institutions are obviously of vital importance and the University of London was a key site for orchestrating imperial knowledge. What we know now as SOAS was, was a key site for orchestrating the understanding of religions and knowledges um, of the East uh, and Africa. We can also think about cultural institutions of which there are many world leading examples in contemporary London, which make it a global site in terms of learning and culture and art. Many of these museums at the time were processing the cultural products of globalization and displaying them in London through exhibitions, through art collections, and a topic which is very controversial today, through statues, bringing statues back from the empire and erecting statues to colonizers. But we can also think of the social elements of, of a global city. Many people argue that globalization happens through people coming together, but it's where they eat, where they dine, where they drink, the clubs they go to. All of these were absolutely vital for the imperial city as well. So we can think of the geographies and the historical geographies of the city, but I also draw on the work of some economic historians in the paper to argue that globalization didn't just begin with the big bang and financial deregulation in the 1980s. Mm -hmm. and Hopkins argue that there are many phases of globalization going back to um, the medieval, the early modern, uh, even earlier periods. And one nice thing that they remind us is that it was only really the middle phase of globalization that was dominated by European powers, what they call the imperial phase. The early phase was driven by often um, pilgrimages between um, Asia and Europe and the Middle East, trade routes over land connecting uh, China and Europe, whereas the post-colonial phase has been driven by the, the, the rise of Asian superpowers driving um, um, globalization, such as China, uh, uh, India, and increasingly um, African nations. So it's only really that mid and middle period of globalization that was really driven by Europe and America and that's where my research focuses on. It looks specifically at the intersection between the international and the imperial in that, in that historical phase of globalisation. I don't think I'd understood that really. I, I read uh, The Silk Roads by Jonathan Franzen mm. and I got a completely different perspective mm. on that sort of archaic and pre-archaic mm. globalisation. It was fascinating. Mm. And yeah. that's the sort of thing that you've talked about with Hopkins' work. Yes, it's, it's a really interesting body of work because it, in one sense what they're arguing is that the majority of globalisation has been driven by European institutions and they say that you need to look very, in very detailed ways at what was happening in the European core as it can be thought of, the finance houses, the banks, the government. 
But within that model, they always create a space for acknowledging that there are regional forms of interaction that were pivotal for facilitating globalization, that they predated um, European forms of globalization, and that in many ways they've survived and structured ongoing very different forms of the ways in which the world is being structured together. So they provide an interesting model for helping us acknowledge, of course, that there was a rapid expansion of global inter interactions in the imperial period, but there were always other geographies and other stories to tell within that global narrative. It's really complex, and it's a really complex thing for teachers to try and convey to students. Mm. You talk about that daunting abstraction about globalisation being much more real and lived, if that's the way that we look at it, through that perspective. Yeah, so, so the challenge, not, not only to teach globalisation, but to research it and to understand it, is to acknowledge that it's impossible to grasp all of it. There is no thing out there that is globalisation. It is what people make of it and how they live it. So the challenge is to, to look at those lives and to look at representations of globalisation. And as geographers, we can look at places that structure globalisation. We can look at the networks that we can um, see being forged through globalisation. One of the, the ways I'm really interested in looking at um, the geographies of globalisation is to look at maps, mapping. And that's a very interesting way into thinking about globalisation. Let me just ask you, this, this, was, this was a question that I think fascinates me. I, I, my colleague did the historical aspects of A-level geography, and I was always interested on field trips to get his perspective on how we looked at things. Uh, I'd like to ask you how teachers might use historical material to think about geographical relationships. Yeah, so... I often face this challenge, especially with first-year students who've signed up for a geography degree, and then they get me talking about history, and they view this explicitly as history, um, something they didn't really sign up for. That, that's often what you face, but I do find immediately, as soon as you start using historical maps, that, that, that the battle starts to be won. I think the one thing which unites geography, we are very, very disparate group, is I think all geographers love maps. Um, looking at the production of maps, making maps themselves. And what I do in that article is use three maps to try to show you how people at the time were representing these different forms of what we think of as, as, as globalisation. So the first map I use is from 1910, and it's a map of the world divided between colonial empires. It's a multicolour map, the British are in um, pink, um, the Danish are in yellow, that you might not think in 1910 as a major colonising nation, but um, Greenland, because mm -hmm. of the Mercator projection, is depicted the size of Africa in, in, in bright yellow. And what it shows is that the majority of the world at the time was orchestrated by empires, whether it's the vast Russian land empire or the more disparate territorial empires of mostly European orchestrated nations, though America with the Philippines also features. But all of these maps, of course, um, are ways of projecting power and we need to read them and think about what's included and what's not. So for instance, the British Empire is usually depicted in pink. And what that does is it masks the huge diversity of what Britain called its empire. There was no coordinating plan behind the construction of the British Empire. Territories were acquired in very different ways and they were vastly different. And these were acknowledged um, by the early 20th century in, for instance, the distinction between the dominions, which were largely self-governing, 
most Canada, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, and the rest of the empire that was governed as colonies. So the map seems very clear, but it actually masks quite a lot. So we can think of that as one way of, of um, projecting the imperial. Hmm. But what I'm really interested in in the, in the interwar period after the First World War is looking at and thinking about the geographies of internationalism. And there, were, there was huge support for internationalism in the years after the First World War because it was argued that nationalism and imperialism had created false divisions between people over which people had fought and died. And internationalists argued that there was much more to be gained through cooperation and peace, and that that needed to be worked through through these new international institutions. And the League of Nations was the, the major institution created after the First World War to attempt to um, encourage this form of, of new internationalism. And the second map I look at was produced in 1929. And at first glance, it's black and white. It, it distinguishes between those members of the world who are nation states within the League of Nations. And in black, there's members, in whites, there's non-members. It's a very stark image because the USSR um, and the USA especially are not member states. So that appears to be the major lesson. But if you look closely in gray, there are these small um, number of territories called mandates. And these were parts of the world that were um, ruled by the Ottoman Empire and Germany. And as members that were defeated in the First World War, those territories were taken from them um, as a result of the Paris Peace Conference. And rather than being given independence, they were handed over to other nation states or empires to be governed until they were ready for independence. And these were mostly in um, the Middle East, uh, in Africa and Pacific. And what many people argued is that if you're just going to give over territories to other empires, then is the League of Nations internationalism really that different to imperialism? So actually, rather than being two opposed forms of organising the world and globalising the world, they're actually quite compatible. And that becomes very apparent in the third map I use, which is actually from a school book produced for students in South Asia, uh, explaining the League of Nations and its, and its organisation of the world. And in that map, you have these distinctions between member states and non-member states. You have mandates in red, but there's this different colour, and these coloured in, in brown were the dependencies so these are basically the colonies of member states of the League of Nations that were sort of included in the League, but they didn't have a voice in Geneva. They couldn't really influence policy. So what the map shows is that internationalism and imperialism actually intersected via the League of Nations. The, 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 the major drivers of League of Nations policy were imperial nations. So the maps provide us with really interesting ways of thinking about this period when um, internationalism and imperialism of forms of historical globalization were intersecting and the maps show the tensions of those forms and they're, they're really good teaching resources I think. For people who've been listening to this we'll put in the link to the article because I've been just looking at the three maps as you've been talking and it's just fascinating listening to you talking to them at the same time as being able to look at them so we'll put those we'll put those in for right. the teachers. What led you from there then to focusing particularly on colonial India, because that's, um, that's your deep interest. Where, where did that come from? Yes, um, well, I don't know why, but when I was growing up, I wanted to be a town and country planner. Um, no one has been able to explain where this ambition came from. I did it for my school placement, and that was what I hoped to do. And then I discovered historical geography at university and found that the British were designing and creating new towns in the empire, um, 
of an extent that they wouldn't attempt back in Britain until the New Times movement of the 50s and 60s, really. And they were completely different, these very bold, brash expressions of imperial power. So for my undergrad dissertation and then PhD, I looked at the, the construction of New Delhi in India. Really, I started off being interested in town planning, but then I became more interested in how actually next to this big new city, the capital of the British Empire in India, was this pre-existing city, which became known as Old Delhi, that had to be policed, it had to be made sanitary, it had to be in some way controlled and integrated. So that really was the start for me, um, starting to write about and think about something which is usually written about by historians, the, the British Empire and its spread, and trying to think about how we can look at precisely what I suggested earlier, how do nodes and networks intersect? How do you create a city that needs to govern a colony, as it was thought of, of 330 million people? How does that become expressed and how do you extend control over the neighbouring city? So that was the first project, really thinking about the urban, but then I've become more interested in how would we do a similar thing for the history of the nation of India? How do we think about its space and its scales? And I've become interested in something, again, which is not a very sexy topic, a constitutional history. But if you're trying to sort of administer demands for political freedom without giving it, it's about constitutionalism. So how do you give a little bit of democracy without giving very much? And that's what led me to thinking about national and subnational borders within India, within India. There were provinces in India, regions, that were larger than some European nations. So organising these internal structures and the geography of their connections between local and, um, and the national was interesting. But what tended to happen was um, there'd be some democratic progress and then nothing would happen for 10, 15 years. And in 1930, they decided to grant more concessions and to actually do it through dialogue rather than through um, imposition. And that's why they invited over 100 delegates to London for the Roundtable Conference, which I've been looking at, to, to, try, to try to agree the next stage of constitutional development through dialogue in London. And it's, it's a really interesting way of showing how you bring people together in a very small space, and what they do in that small space is determine the next 10 to 15 years of political governance of the entirety of India. So that's how my interest in the urban and the, and the broader scale of national constitutional history have come together. I want to ask you a little bit more about that in a, in a second, but yeah. I hope I'm not showing my ignorance here. But what surprises me is how little study there is done of the Indian subcontinent in geography at school. Mm. I don't know whether you've well, I don't know if you have, you have a view on that or not but I, I seem to find a lot of schools that don't touch it and I didn't we did under the southern cross when I was at school and when I first started teaching that was the book that I thought we must get rid of this it is so old-fashioned mm -hmm. but it didn't address India at all yeah well I think it's it's a this is a really key debate at the moment um which comes and um, the, the question emerges in many fields. One is, for instance, the debates about Black Lives Matter. Um, one is the debates about what's called decolonizing the curriculum. Uh, and the other is just more broadly about what some people have called the sort of post-colonial amnesia within Britain and British education about empire. 
Um, you might study the abolition of slavery, but you don't really study the network which created slavery. You might study um, slums in Mumbai as a form of informal urbanism, but you won't really be taught about <clears throat> the fact that if it weren't for British collaboration with local, there wouldn't be a Bombay, there wouldn't have been a Mumbai. So I do think there is that lack of understanding. But the broader, the broader question is, how, how could you teach the extent of the British Empire in sufficient detail? It's, it's an unsolvable question. Um, and I think the only way you can do it is to study networking, things like globalization, and then with local studies. So when I try to teach, I start off with the, the bigger picture, and then you just have to acknowledge that you're going to have to do a regional specialism, but also a subdisciplinary specialism. So for instance, m many people will have come across um, India more through development geography or environmental geography. So the Green Revolution, um, unfortunately, things like famine, um, the, the developmental problems of informal settlements and, and slums. And that's important and it's vital, but the problem with that, and as someone who's interested in the afterlives of imperialism, is that it's very easy for a lot of imperial tropes to slip into that narrative. So India is a problem space, India is a space that needs development. That's precisely what was used to justify the British presence in India in the first place. So I think the, the really good, well thought out studies, which might look at slums in, in Mumbai, try to emphasize that these are places of great innovation. They're very entrepreneurial spaces. They're, they're places which, to be honest, in the future, it's much more likely that cities will look more like Mumbai than they will like London or Nottingham. So these are actually spaces of the future that we can look into to think about um, problem solving rather than problems which external experts have to, have to come into. And I suppose when I teach India and when I teach this material, it's really important to remember in the interwar period, some of the world's leading political theorists, novelists, poets, international relations theorists were Indian um, and they were driving debates about the future of Asia, but also the future of Europe. Um, Anti-colonial nationalist freedom fighters were, were politicians, but they were also theorists, writers. <clears throat> they published endlessly in the press and they had a really big impact upon politics in Europe and globally. So what we can also do historically is remind people that the narrative of the rest of the world being a problem was part of the justification of imperialism. And what we can do through finding stories about um, these places as non-problems, as solution makers, is to, to work against that geography, that geographical view of the world, in which Europe is the solution and the rest of the world is the problem. If you're from India in 1930, Europe is very much the problem. <laughs> That's a really interesting way of looking at it. And the other thing that I just want to go back to with your with the maps, with the Mercator projections, mm. just a problem of scale as well, because mm. of the way that the maps are drawn, of course. But if you take if you take the UK and you plonk it onto India on that sort of map, they're pretty much the same size. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. lose the vastness of the yeah. whole Indian subcontinent. Never mind anything about just uh, the, the more important things about place and the sense of place and identity. Absolutely. The, <clears throat> there have always been really interesting ways of experimenting with map projections to level up that, um, to level up that, that misrepresentation. 
But there's also some really fun ways about thinking about the, you know, the Antipodean question, why Australia is always depicted on as the bottom. So there's been some really fun maps where they, up, they upturn the world, they stretch the projection, and suddenly Europe is this small, marginal place at the bottom of the Earth. So yeah, and Greenwich Mean Time, of course, also is the um, um, zero degree puts London literally at the centre of, of the world. Um, so within all, all of those um, depictions, there's a centering of, of Britain and there's an overemphasis of its, of, its, of its size, for sure. So really, you've talked us through a rethink of the history of British-Indian relationships, I suppose. Um, and, and that's given teachers an awful lot to think about, I think, when they, when they look at your paper and then they look at what, how am I going to address this? How am I going to look at this in the future? Because mm. uh, every A-level spec, as I said at the beginning, looks at globalisation, it looks at um, internationalism, and it looks at those sorts of debates where internationalism was forged. You focus on the, the, the conference as a yeah. place for that happening. Yeah, well, I think this, this, this rethinking of British-Indian relations, which you mentioned, is, is really important. And if there's one thing I'd encourage people to just remember, which emerges out of decades of scholarships, that, is that it wasn't one way. What many administrators write about empire wanted you to think was that there was Europe that was filled with wealth, intellectual wealth, cultural wealth, wealth of experience, wealth of engineering, and that this was exported to the rest of the world to help it. And what we need to remember is that that, that did happen, but it was very much a reciprocal flow. It was a two-way flow. So, and we can think of the flows back to, to Europe, in this case from India to Britain, in, in, in various ways. One was practical. Um, there was a huge, vast wealth um, was created in India and exported back to the UK. An Indian economic nationalist referred to this as, as the drain of, of wealth. The idea that Europe came to India and helped it make money um, and to make it richer, you could say it was true, but it redistributed that wealth between classes and ex expropriated a lot of it back to Europe. But also we can think about how people made their careers in India and then they came back to shape Britain in really significant ways. So at the Paris Peace Conference that I mentioned earlier, the two main figures driving British negotiations were ex-viceroys of India. So Curzon had been Viceroy of India towards the end of the 19th century. He was the Foreign Secretary at the time, and Viceroy Harding, um, who had um, governed uh, India uh, in, in the early 20th century. He was the head of the British delegation to the conference. And there's many examples of people who made their name in India and come back to really direct and lead British policy. So those are practical flows. We can think about flows of imagination as well. Um, the, the absolutely central role that India had to the way in which the British imagined the non-Western world. And you can see that through architecture, through painting, through clothing, through fashion, later through food. So there's this huge influence of India in the UK. But these, these are ways of thinking about the British as agents of that influence. We can also think about the way in which Indian um, activists, um, organisations were trying successfully most of the time to have an influence within the U in the UK, and we can think of this in in political ways, especially after the First World War, when anti-colonial nationalists argued increasingly that India 
not only wanted and deserved, but India could demand greater um, concessions. And this was particularly as an impact of India's contribution to the First World War. Over one million people were mobilized for the war in terms of direct combat, but also in terms of logistics and support, larger than any other um, uh, nation of, of the empire. So really, during the war, India was promised constitutional advance, and it was that promise that was chased and chased um, through through the, the interwar years. And we can think of that political campaign as having real impacts upon British life. There were many British supporters for Indian political advancement, fewer but a significant number supporting Indian freedom. But the Indian question completely reshaped many aspects of British political life in the interwar years, in particular the, the Conservative Party, were divided um, significantly over this Indian question. Churchill was the most prominent, what was called the die-hard Tories, who didn't want any concession to an Indian independence, but the party was actually led by relatively more progressive um, Conservatives who accepted the need for progress or India could be lost altogether. So we find the question through all political um, life uh, in Britain in the interwar years. And that's what I look at, how that question, which was driving Indian uh, British politics at the time, intersected directly with Indian leaders when they were brought um, to London for this, for this conference. I wonder what perception of, of young students would be if you ask them, what do you think about India? I don't know if you do it with your students, but if we did it with Y9, Y10 students, I wonder what they they come up with because they are faced quite often with just problems that they'll have picked those up off the news possibly so they won't have come across unless they've done any reading or they watch a, something like um, a suitable boy that's on at the moment perhaps mm. get the impression of the country the impression of the beauty the impression of the buildings they'll just see it as a as a place of problems like like they did with afghanistan and i, I, I picked out some bits from Khaled Hussaini's writing that talked about the beauty of the pomegranate trees and the landscape and the, and the scents. And it's just so different from what young people might have in their head as, a, as an impression. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. Um, I, I don't think, I, I think the question also goes the other, way, the other way around. I do spend a lot of time in India. And occasionally you'll ask people about the British, especially young people. A, I don't think they, they get the distinction between Britain and America often. <laughs> it's just English speaking rich people from abroad. In Delhi, it's different because most people know that the British were central in creating the capital. But I don't really, I don't really have a clear answer. Just for anecdotally, what seems to get taught is that India is, is a place of colour, it's a place of dance, it's a place of exotic food. And that's, that's fine. And I don't want to berate young children for falling into Orientalist stereotypes, but that is an image of, of India that was very much creative and supportive by the, by the British, but it's also now it's the image of India which is exported because it's sent to the tourist industry. So one of the many legacies of, of, of the British in India is this image of India. And it's not just that that lives on in a sort of ethereal manner. It's become a major marketing resource for getting people to India. So um, I don't know the answer, but I think the images which are there don't just result from education, they result from marketing. And there's oh, a really right. interesting yes. history behind it. It's and everything. That's why we need to teach a little bit, a little bit more. <laughs> I, I'm probably going to flit a little bit here, but sure. looking at your website, Conferencing the International, 
which we'll also put the URL on, in for. Um, while we're talking about representations of place, all the A-level specs also talk about place and it, informal and formal representations. And you've got a section there on, on how the conference was represented in different ways through cartoons and through writing. And it's just fascinating the season, seeing the different ways that the people there were represented. Absolutely, yeah. So this, this conference took place in three sittings between 1930 and 1932. Over 100 Indian social and political leaders came to London to stay for often two or three months at a time. They'd do five days a week of thrashing out the next stage of cultural um, and constitutional development in India. And what we've tried to say is in terms of thinking about this as a place-making exercise, London was reshaped for the months that these Indians were living in London. And what we've been trying to say is we can do the constitutional history of what they were debating, what the future legislative chamber would look like. But we've also been trying to look at what did these people do in London? How did people react to them? And one of the great ways of conveying that, which we do through the website, is to try to give as many um, representations of the delegates as, as we can. So one of those is through the emergent art, really, of the tabloid photographic press. This is, the, this is 1930, so you've, you've just got the emergence of cameras that are mobile enough to allow photojournalism. So in many ways, that's public. But um, candid camera, it means something very different to us now. But at the time, candid camera was a photographer, Eric Salomon, who had a tendency of getting into really posh social events and snapping people unawares. And there were so many conference dinners, the Maharajas, who were the hereditary rulers of India, were very wealthy and would display this wealth for these huge dinners at the Carlton, the Savoy, Park Lane hotels. So, um, and, and this, people just love this. It's the same now as the sort of Downton Abbey effect. People were just interested in aristocrats and rich lives, these amazingly dressed um, women, fabulously wealthy Maharajas. And that really seems incidental, it seems gossipy, but it wasn't gossipy really, because the princes were depicting themselves in particular ways. They were at risk in future constitutional development of having their rights within their states impinged upon. So they wanted to impress their significance in London, and they did that through their um, wealth. There are also um, a series of caricatures made by Emery Kellen, who was the predominant political caricaturist at the time. He spent a lot of time in Geneva. In the mid-30s, he went to um, Germany and depicted the, the rise of the Nazis. But he came to London and did endless portraits of these delegates. Again, really for the money. They were very rich and they'd pay for personal caricatures, but the press loved them as well. So what we do is we, we, we put them up because they're interesting uh, and they're beautiful objects, really. But we also try to draw attention to the way in which Indian subjects were depicted in, in racialized ways. Um, Kellen wrote in his biography about you know, the attraction of colours Indian wars depicted through the colour of their clothes, but also through the colour of their skin. And there's a series of racial hierarchies which find their way into his depictions. And we talk briefly about one example of, a, of one of the few female delegates, Sarojini Naidu, who clearly had a falling out with Kellen and is depicted in a particularly unflattering light. And she writes in her letters her about how she hates the portrait about how it's sold for a huge amount of money. It's a charitable auction. So these images, they're not incidental. Um, people are very aware of how they're being depicted at the time because it will, it will influence their ability to negotiate. It will influence how 
significant that they're viewed if they're going to get invited back for the conference. So we talk about that, but we also talk about it. We put up some PDFs of the conference proceedings. They're not scintillating reads. There's tens of thousands of, of pages. But if people want to, they can go in and they're all searchable text if there's a person they're interested in. And what you just get a sense of is the vast labour that's going into these conferences, months and months and months of, of committee and subcommittee work. And all, all of those um, debates are about recreating India, really. Who will get to pay for what? Where will the money come from? Which province will be subdivided to better represent the people and language and, and religion? So we put those on the website to try to really, we don't frame it in this way, but it is about placemaking. How, how was this place being made through image, through representation, through labour? We also put up some maps of where people stayed in London. So which bits of London worked as a conference city? If you read the proceedings, you just think it was St. James's next to the Mall. If you look at where people ate and where they dined, it focuses on the West End, but it really spreads out through the whole city. So this imperial city... Um, functioned not just to administer the rest of the world, but people could come there and do things. And that's what the conference uh, allowed. And you've also got um, an article that complements that, I suppose, or, or actually the website complements the article, the one called Conferences as the Origin of, of Internationalism. Yeah, and that was, um, um, it's a summary of the broader um, project in which we, we tried to make this case um, if one node and network I've mentioned is imperial or global cities and the imperial, what we're trying to do in the project that this emerges from is that there's another node and another network you can think about. And that's the network being internationalism, but rather than cities being the coordinating nodes, we talk about conferences because internationalism was often driven by institutions which didn't always have vast wealth. They might not have had a permanent home, although the League of Nations had one in Geneva. So what they had to do is occasionally, they physically had to come together in a place to try to think about the challenges of internationalism and what the solutions might be. So rather than looking at permanent cities as the organizing nodes of internationalism, we look at conferences because they wouldn't always be in the same place. They'd often be similar cities because as I argued earlier, you need certain infrastructures to enable you to function as a conference city. You need to be able to get there. You need hotel accommodation. You need a venue. You need somewhere to eat. You need bars. Often, you also need stuff to do at the weekend. People were there for months. So you'd have theatre trips. You'd have field trips. Um, you'd have special lectures put on for visiting delegates. So there's certain places enabled certain comings together to orchestrate the next stage of trying to tilt or, or, or advance um, internationalism. So yeah, in that piece, it's a very brief sort of summary article, but we try to make this case that the nodes and networks we look at aren't just the imperial and the urban, they can be the international, and a node can be a temporary thing like a conference. I really like that. I'd, I'd not thought about it in that way at all, uh, but and the idea that face-to-face um, -face is so important. I wonder whether they do the same with a Zoom meeting. <laughs> well, when, when we made the, the pitch, we got, we got funding for this project. It's a five-year project. Part of the pitch was that conferences were increasingly being called into question. And at that time, the threat wasn't COVID. It was climate change. How can you justify flying once a year often to America or to 
um, or to East Asia, perhaps two of the main places we tended to go to conferences, how can you justify the carbon? Is it worth the carbon? And people would say, well, it is, for precisely the, the, thing I'm, the reason I'm arguing historically. Most of the work gets, not most of the work, uh, but a lot of the work gets done in the bar or the restaurant or the hallway or the coffee place or who you have breakfast with. And then you go in, you do the formal bit of work, and then you say, I really have to talk. It's a networking event. And the formal bit of it is quite small. And at the time, we were saying, well, people had started to do virtual conferencing. And we really were arguing, um, you know, we, we're not there to recommend how conferences work best, but we were making the historical case that you need to study what goes off around the conference. That's where the work gets done. Um, and then the very end of it, COVID happened. We were supposed to be presenting this at a conference in Denver last year. It got called off. We're all doing this now. And um, Zoom meetings are fine. I think they're fine. But I think we could also admit that group conversations don't work particularly well. Um, you can go off into a sub room and have a... It, it's not the same. But it's also much more democratic there's a lot more equality here you don't need to be able to pay 800 pounds to go to a conference if every lecture is going to be made free online um even if you do get the conference many people are so broke by that point they can't go to the posh restaurant or the bar so this is you don't need any money you don't need to pollute um it's got its advantages um so but the interactive elements i think is gone so i've been sitting here watching lectures by some of the most famous people in the world, and there's three or four questions at the end, and then at the end you click and it's over. You it's go and make it pee. Yeah. So um, I think what we're realising now is the point we, we've been making is that it's important to come together to do things. But as a geographer, um, the point we're making is that the place where a conference happens is only one part of what becomes a temporary node in a, in a city, almost always a city, and you need to study all of those spaces to really get what's happening. So it is a geographical point. We need to open up and broaden the maps through which we think of these um, event spaces taking place. And that's what we show on the website through where people ate, drank uh, and slept in, in the city. But that's a methodological point as well about trying to use as many sources as you can to think about all the things people were doing. I think that's a really good lesson for, for A-level teachers who are looking at place just as how much we explore into the interactions that, that happen there rather than just simply how it might have been when I, was, uh, when I was at school, just the buildings. There was none of this about how is, it, how is it represented in many ways and how do people experience it? What's the lived life for people of different strata through that, um, through that place? Yeah. So it's, it's a fascinating little microcosm of, mm. um, of place. Okay, I'm, go I'm, going to, um, I'm going to ask you finally, the big one really, what key advice would you give to teachers who are currently teaching globalisation, global governance and place? And they will be in their droves at A-level. Well, I mean, it is a big question. Um, and I'll, I have been given some time to think about this one. So I'll keep it very, very simple. And it's that, it's, it's that question I posed at the start is, how can we think as geographers about the interconnections between nodes and networks? And this is a, a model, the network model has been you know, a quite successful one in helping people think about that. They're coordinating cities and they're places um, that are moved across. Networks move across places to facilitate things like globalization. 
And that's great. It, it brings us lots of things. But the, the, the danger is that you end up thinking that a network and a node are two separate things. So one of the challenges for us, I think, is to think about how networks, the moving bits, are also their own little nodes. So in a separate paper, I've looked at what the delegates did on the journey from India to London, because it took two weeks. So first of all, they had to get from wherever they were in India to Bombay. That could take a week or two. You then have to um, go up through the Suez Canal. You go across to Marseille. It was much cheaper and quicker to get the train from Marseille through Paris, and then you go across the channel. So it took two to three weeks, and often those people were traveling with other delegates. So what it turns out is that a lot of the conference work got done on the, on the steamers from Bombay to, to Marseille. So the point being, the thing which you think of as networking is moving. There are things happening in the movement. So the movement itself is a network of people sleeping in cabins, dining together, going for walks on the deck. So yes, think of nodes and networks, but the networks are also little nodes, but they're moving. And secondly, we can think of nodes as being the still bit and the network being the moving bit. But as I've tried to explain in, in London, it's a node, but if you zoom in, the node itself is just millions of little networks of people getting to work and going for coffee and, and, and buzzing around. So the nodes and networks is really interesting, but I think the next step up is, well, how is a node a network and a network also a node? So I wouldn't start your lesson with that, but um, I think it's a very good way to end it because what we all try to do at university level, and I think as soon as students start to do this, the better. Models are really interesting, but as with a map, there's a lesson within every map and there's a lesson within every geographical model. So I'd encourage um, teachers to, to, to think about that distinction. And I think there's endless historical material out there that shows that that um, distinction, that problem um, isn't a new one. And hopefully they'll give them interesting ways of, of thinking about that provocation. When we talk about geography or geographers looking at things through a geographer's lens and in that sense it's a telescopic lens we're moving Absolutely. in we're moving out and we're looking at the same thing but just at different scales tells us different things precisely and, and the thing which drives all my research is trying to think about how space and scale intercept and how we can do that as geographers that's the that's the challenge and it's the tool which i come back to repeatedly well that's fascinating thank you very much that, i really enjoyed that and i'm certain Teachers of A-Level will find that really valuable. We'll put all the links onto the information that goes with this that Darren puts together. But for me, that's been a, a most enjoyable conversation. Thank you. Me too. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for the invitation. Hi, I'm Mark from the membership team here at the GA. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of JogPod, produced for you by the Geographical Association. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to JogPod on your podcast app. And if you're interested in learning more about what the GA has to offer, head over to our website at geography.org.uk.